Welcome, welcome back. This is uh, the health insurance portion. So we're going to go over some health insurance um, questions. I hope the previous session, which was just on life insurance, was able to help you a little bit. So let's get started. I'm going to go ahead and share my camera with you so you can take a look at the test question. And we're going to complete this. We're almost done. All right. Let's take a look here. All right. So we're going to just do a few questions of the health. Um, just for you to have an idea of um, about how the health insurance questions look like. All right. So yeah, let's get started. So now, just something to let you know about the exam. So you have both uh, life insurance and health insurance, right? So most states give you the option to combine the two exams. So instead of taking two separate exams where you take one life uh, and you take one health insurance, most states allow you to combine both of them. So you can take both the life and health. So you have three options. You can either take life by itself, you can take um, health by itself, or you could do both of them. I know some states like Washington, D.C. doesn't give you the option to combine them. You have to do them individually. All right. So uh, let's go ahead here and show you what that looks like. All right. All right. So what is the this question here number six is the medical information bureau is composed of what so a says insurers and producers b says producers c says hospitals d says insurers the medical information bureau is composed of what so <coughs> excuse me so the medical information bureau correct answer is going to be d the Medical Information Bureau is composed of insurers, all right? So the Medical Information Bureau is a group of insurance companies. Mm, I'm sorry. Uh, it's a group of insurance companies that, that uh, they have this central database where they report all medical information. So anytime you use the insurance company to, to um, to pay for any healthcare expense that is reported to the Medical Information Bureau. And they usually store healthcare information there for at least 10 years, but it could be 20, even 30 years of your healthcare information gets stored there. Just think about the Medical Information Bureau as um, the, the, um, the equivalent for having like the National Crime Database where if you commit a crime in Texas, you go to, you know, to California or Nevada, they can just put in your social security number and everything comes up. So it's the same thing with the Medical Information Bureau. Anytime you pay for healthcare with your insurance, that is submitted to the Medical Information Bureau. That is one of the ways insurance companies are able to tell whether you're lying on your application. So on the application, you say, oh, have you ever been treated for um, for diabetes or for, you know, for, for 
have blood pressure? And you say no. But when they go and check your medical information bureau file, oh, you were treated for high blood pressure five years ago. Everything comes up on your record. So I usually tell my clients to not lie on your application because if you pay with your insurance, if you got treated, um, you got seen or diagnosed with something, it's going to show up on your medical information bureau. So there's no need lying on your application. Uh, just, just tell the truth. So when you see the medical information bureau, just know that it's composed of insurers. All right, and is a central database for all healthcare information. So another thing to know about the Medical Information Bureau, the Medical Information Bureau is one of the tools that the insurance company uses for underwriting. So I see, for example, for my clients, uh, one of the insurance companies I work with, one of the first things they'll do within the first seven days after you submit an application is to run the client's um, MIB report, their Medical Information Bureau report within the first seven days after you submit an application. So the Medical Information Bureau, this one is going to be on your exam. All you have to know about it, uh, there are just a few things. Number one, it is composed of insurers. Number two is used in the underwriting process. So the underwriter is going to look at that report to compare what's on that report to what's in the application. And that's one of the ways they use, um, you know, one of the tools they use to um, kind of um, double check and make sure people are telling the truth on their application. So it says here, um, the Medical Information Bureau is a computer database which contains medical and some non-medical information such as Avocation interest pertaining to individuals who have applied for insurance coverage. Members are the insurers, and it is a nonprofit organization. Okay, so it's the nonprofit organizations, and the members are insurers, you know, insurance companies. All right, let's come here to next question. So I also tell people that keep in mind that the that the health insurance portion of your exam is usually easier than, uh, no, usually more difficult than life insurance. Even for me, when I took my exam, I found out life insurance for some reason was a lot easier uh, than health insurance. So what I recommend for people is usually start with your life insurance. If you want to take them separately, then start with your life insurance, study that first, go and take an exam, and then you come back and you can study your health insurance because about 15% of what, 15 or 20% of what is on the life insurance exam will be on the health insurance exam because that will include um, legal concepts of insurance, general insurance, all those things. Uh, those are on both the life and health insurance. So if you're going to separate the two exams, that means you're not combining them together, but you're taking them separately, then I'll recommend do the life insurance exam first. All right, let's go here. Next question says, Federal Fair Credit Reporting Act, A, regulates consumer reports, B, protects customer privacy, C, protects producer privacy, D, prevents, ter uh, prevents terrorism and money laundering. Federal Fair Credit Reporting Act. And guys, please follow along with me to answer these questions so you can make sure you get the right answer. So what is the right answer? Federal Fair Credit Reporting Act. So anytime you see 
the Federal Fair Credit Reporting Act, the you know the the three words that should come to mind: number one, privacy; number two, um, consumer reports. Number one, well, three words: privacy, consumer reports, and um, and credit. Okay, because you see the name says Credit Reporting Act or Fair Credit Reporting Act. So that act just protects the general public that if a company gathers information uh, you know, about you, about whether it's your credit, um, your criminal profile, whatever, you have certain rights. And the rights you have as a consumer are enshrined in the Fair, uh, Federal Fair Credit Reporting Act. So when you have Fair Credit Reporting Act, think consumer privacy, um, and then consumer reports and credit. All right, so what's the correct answer here? Correct answer is B, protects customer privacy. The Fair Credit, the Fair Credit Reporting Act does not regulate consumer reports, nope. Um, it, it, uh, no, it does not regulate um, consumer reports. It, it does not protect producer privacy. It does not prevent terrorism and money laundering. So technically it regulates consumer reports a little bit because it tells um, you know, consumer reporting agencies what they can report, what they cannot report, who has access to that report for how long, all of that. So at some point it regulates, but on your exam, you're looking for, you may have an answer that may be kind of true, but if you have another answer on that question that is more true, right, or that is a better answer, then you go with that one. So in this case, protecting um, customer privacy is more, uh, it's a better um, answer than regulates consumer reports. Now, let's read here. This is the Fair Credit Reporting Act. It's a US federal government legislation. So when you think fair credit thing, federal law, okay? So first thing, fair credit is a federal law, all right? So federal law. So on the exam, they may say fair credit reporting act is a state law, federal law, they will try to trick you. So fair credit reporting is a federal law. The next thing here is, um, is protected, you know, enacted to protect information collected. Uh, consumer reporting agencies. So this can be your Experian, your Equifax, your TransUnion, all of that. And promote the accuracy and fairness of consumer information contained in the files of consumer reporting agencies. The Fair Credit Reporting Act also protects consumer privacy. It also mandates that data collected is accurate, relevant, confidential and used for legitimate and specific purposes. So the only people who have access to your credit report or your consumer um, files are people or individuals who have legitimate reason to access it. So for example, if you are landlord, yes, I can run your credit because you apply for, um, you know, you apply to rent my property. So you fill out an application, you, you, you sign out some disclosures. Yes, you agree for me to run your credit. In this case, if you apply for life insurance, uh, one of the disclosures you sign, but a lot of people don't even read, they just sign, sign. 
one of the disclosures you sign is to run uh, a credit report on you to run a background check. All right. So let's review fair credit. It's a federal law, but two, it protects it protects consumer privacy and and it also you know uh, and it has certain protections there right so so one of the protection is that is uh, it gives the you the consumer certain rights okay consumer has rights So you have the right to have accurate information, um, accurate information on your report. Uh, if that information is inaccurate, uh, it is the credit reporting agency's responsibility to make the necessary um, corrections. And, and also, you also have the right to request a copy of that information. So let's say if a life insurance company denies you um, life insurance based on what's in your consumer report, right? You have a right to that information. So you have the right to request a copy of all reports filed on you. And then if there's any inaccurate um, report filed on you, the credit reporting agencies have 24 hours, uh, I'm sorry, 24 months where they have to notify all of the um, agencies or entities or people they send that report to, that inaccurate report. They have 24 months to send all those um, people the correct information. So let's say a credit reporting agency says that um, I didn't pay my student loans, uh, I defrauded on my student loan. When I clearly did not, but I messed up my credit and it caused me not to be accepted for a lot of things. So if I discover that the credit reporting agency by law has 24 months, within 24 months, they must contact every person or uh, business that they share that inaccurate information with, they have 24 months to give them the right information, all right? So uh, again, um, 24 months, uh, no, the, the credit reporting agency, okay? I don't know if you can see this, um, credit reporting, uh, credit reporting agency. Please excuse my handwriting. I, I know it's not the best. Reporting agency has 24 months to, to send updated info to um, necessary parties. All right, let's come to question number next one here, third question. 
It says, in regards to parties to an insurance contract, which of the following does not describe a competent party? Okay. In regards to parties to an insurance contract, which of the following does not describe a competent party? A, the person must be mentally competent to understand the contract. B, the person must be at least 18 years of age. C, the person must not be under influence of marijuana. D, the person must have at least completed high school education. So here, the question is saying, in regards to parties to an insurance contract, which of the following does not? Again, they, these questions get a little tricky because now you, when you read this question and you're rushing, you're automatically going to select the right answer. But this one, you are looking for the wrong answer. Which of the following is not uh, or does not describe a competent party? So in an insurance contract, who is considered a competent party? A competent party is someone who is legally competent. So that means the person cannot be a minor. That means the person has to be 18 or older. The person cannot be under the influence of any um, drug or alcohol. Uh, not, not, the person must be mentally sound. So if the person um, has, um, I don't know, if the, if the person has Alzheimer's, right? You, you cannot get into a legal contract with someone who has Alzheimer's disease. You cannot get into a legal contract with someone who is mentally um, unstable or, or, or crazy, right? So, so the person has to be in a competent mind. If you get in a contract with that person, then that contract is not considered um, um, legally enforceable and that contract can be voided. So now let's, let's go here and see what's the correct answer. So the correct answer here is D, okay? Because we are looking for the wrong answer. It says the person must have at least completed high school education. Competent, being um, legally competent has nothing to do with your educational level. Yes, you have to be over the age of 18. Yes, um, the, you cannot be under the uh, influence of marijuana. Yes, you must, um, you, know, you must be mentally competent to understand, right? So the wrong answer, which is in this case, the correct answer, because they're asking for which of the following does not describe competent party. The correct answer is D. So it says here, feedback says, in regards to parties to an insurance contract, completion of high school education does not describe competent party. Now let's describe here the, because this one I guarantee you will be on your exam, okay? Let's describe what are the elements of a legal contract. So elements of legal contract. And this applies to all contracts, including, um, no, including insurance contracts, okay? Elements of legal contract. Number one, you must have competent parties. This one, I guarantee you guys will be on your exam. Uh, this is in all 50 states. So you must have competent parties. Two, you must have um, an agreement. So what is an agreement? It's just an offer. 
and acceptance. So for example, I say, okay, you know what? Um, John, I'm gonna get in an agreement with you uh, or ABC Insurance is gonna get in an agreement with you. So you will offer to pay them $100 a month and they will accept that by issuing a life insurance policy, right? So you, you offer, there must be an offer and an acceptance in any legal contract. If we have an employment contract, what's the offer? You know, the offer is for you to work um, every single, you know, for you to work X number of hours or a certain number of days or whatever. Um, and your insurance, you know, your, your jobs, acceptance is, okay, if you agree to work uh, on a full-time basis, blah, 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 we're going to what? Uh, employ you at this rate, right? So in any legal contract, there must be offer and acceptance. Third thing is you must have something called consideration. Okay, consideration. What consideration means? It means that you must be able to exchange something of value, right? So again, I gave you something and you give me something. So if there's no exchange of value and 99.9% of the time is money, right? If there's no exchange of value, then there is no, no, it's, it's not legally enforceable. This is why even if you, uh, if you want to sell something to someone, you cannot just give it to them free, right? Um, most of the time, let's say you want to give your car, it has to, you have to charge them at least a dollar or something like that. No, there must be exchange of, um, of value. Number four, it must have a legal purpose. Now, to, to make this easy, um, there, these, there are these um, according mnemonics that help you remember some of these key um, things for the exam. So for the elements of legal contract, the mnemonics I use to help you remember is just CLAC, right? C-L-A-C, CLAC, right? C-L-A-C, CLAC. So um, competent parties, L stands for legal purpose, a stands for agreement and C stands for consideration. So those are the things that I look at when I see uh, elements of legal contract that helps me to remember on the exam. So the fourth option is, you no, know, the fourth element is legal purpose. In order for any contract to be valid, to be legally enforceable, it must be for a legal purpose. For example, I cannot get into an insurance contract um, with the intention of, uh, okay, so let's say I get into an insurance contract um, and I get insurance uh, on my wife. And, and you're going to see this, no, not a lot, but you're going to see people get insurance for the wrong purpose. They get insurance with the sole purpose of committing crime where they get insurance on someone else's life, maybe their spouse or someone else, and then, and then they kill the person for insurance proceeds, right? So you are specifically getting insurance for an illegal act, uh, for an illegal purpose, which is co to commit murder. So in that case, that contract is considered void because it was, um, it was um, taken 
right? It was undertaken for an illegal purpose, which is to commit murder, or you you um, uh, undertake a contract, you get into a contract to commit fraud. If it's for an illegal purpose, that contract is not legally enforceable. This one, I guarantee you, will be on your exam. Or on the insurance exam, when you've been doing this for a long time, um, you kind of have an idea. There are certain, we call them core concepts that will be tested across every different state. It doesn't matter what state you take your exam in, you see um, those questions. So this one, I guarantee you, you're gonna see this one on your exam. At least one question will come on the, um, you know, the elements of legal contract. So make sure you, you know that one. All right. <coughs> Excuse me. Next question here says, a health policy which pays a lump sum of a claim if the insured suffers a stroke or a heart attack is known as, and let me read this question again, a health policy which pays a lump sum of a claim if the insured suffers a stroke or a heart attack is known as A, basic medical coverage, B, major medical, C, critical illness, D, limited medical coverage. What's the correct answer? Correct answer here is C, critical illness. So it's, it's dread disease, all right? So another name for critical illness is dread disease. So dread disease or critical illness insurance pays a lump sum amount for coverage for medical emergencies like heart attack, strokes, or cancer. These policies are usually cheaper than comprehensive health insurance um, because they usually cover only a particular uncommon disease or less than five um, or critical illness named in a policy. So when you see critical illness, know that it's, it's the same as, um, as, as dread disease, okay? So critical illness is dread disease, um, same as dread disease. So in, instead of getting a regular life insurance policy that's comprehensive, that will cover you for everything, some people will just get a specific coverage just for critical illness or, or, or for a specific dread disease. That, those are limited um, disease. Those are uh, uncommon diseases. But diseases, the, um, if you don't have medical coverage, could pretty much make you bankrupt, right? Very expensive. Uh, to treat uh, diseases. So you can just get insurance to cover that particular um, condition. So you could say, okay, you know what? I want insurance to cover, I don't know. Uh, let's, let's pick a dread disease, um, ALS, right? I, I, I want insurance to cover ALS, right? ALS is a rare disease. It's not as common as, let's say, Heart, um, you know, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, all those, you know, it's not, it's not even common as stroke. So some people will just get insurance just for limited diseases. Those kinds of policies, because they are limited in scope, they tend to always be cheaper than regular 
comprehensive spouses. And those spouses will usually cover between one to no more than five um, diseases or illness. Sometimes it will include clinical illness where you say, okay, you know what, if I have a heart attack or choke, instead of paying for my medical bills, just give me one lump sum. So if I have a heart attack, give me $50,000. And then now you get that money and you decide how you want to go about spending it. All right. So um, again, dread disease is usually a common disease. Um, so that's it for that policy. All right. And for, for the exam purposes, you want to know the difference between major medical. Okay, so major medical, just think about the name major medical, it's going to cover everything, right? Because it's major. Basic medical will cover you know, some basic things. And when you take the, um, when you take the full course, when you take my actual course, we go into all these things in a lot more detail. But what I'm giving you right now is just a sample. All right. Let's come here to question 18. It says, an insured individual is a victim of a car accident. He, he permanently loses the use of his leg and is also completely blind in addition to other less serious injuries. His eyesight improves one month later. In regards to claim, to what extent will he receive presumptive disability benefit? Now, Disability, um, the disability topic gets a little confusing because you have total disability, you have partial disability, you have presumptive disability. I mean, you have several different kinds and it gets a little confusing. What I recommend for you guys, if you're not going to take my course, which I highly recommend when you take this course, we go into I mean, we, we dig in on every single testable topic, and that's um, disability is a testable topic on the health insurance sector. But we're going to every single testable topic, I'm going to much more detail. But just make sure if you're not going to take our course, make sure you understand disability uh, insurance very well, because that is something that will be on your exam. You can expect to have anywhere between one to three questions on disability insurance, um, it just depends on your state. Okay? So let's look here at the option choices. It says A, partial benefits. B says full benefits until he resigns his eyesight. Uh, no, he regains his eyesight. C says no benefit. D says full benefits. So what is, what are they asking? Let's read this. An insurer is a victim of a car accident. Okay. He permanently loses use of his leg and is also completely blind. So he loses his leg and he gets blind. His eyesight improves one month later. He, in regards to claim, to what extent will he receive presumptive disability um, benefits? So presumptive, the word presumptive, just meaning um, you're assuming, right? Um, you know, you're, you're assuming something is presumptive. It's not finalized yet. So here, the correct answer will be uh, he's going to, that insurer will receive full benefits until he regains his eyesight. All right? Um, no, because uh, the, uh, the answer is here, to what extent will he receive presumptive disability? So they're presuming, they're assuming 
he's disabled because he lost his eyesight. So he's going to receive full benefits until he regains his eyesight. So partial benefits, no, that's not correct. No benefits, no, he's going to receive something and um, full benefits, no. Well, not just unlimited full benefits, but full benefits just until he regains his eyesight. Let's read the feedback here. Excuse me, guys, Daniel. Um, sorry. Uh, correct answer B. The insurer may receive full benefit until the blindness lifts. Whether or not they can work, presumptive disability is a condition that automatically qualifies insurers for disability benefits. So if you have presumptive disability benefits, that would be in your policy where the insurance is saying, okay, if you're injured, we're going to presume that you're disabled and we're going to start paying you, all right? These conditions are generally considered to be presumptive disabilities. So what are disabilities that are considered to be presumptive? Guys, you want to know this. Total loss of hearing in both eyes, now both ears. So when you lose hearing in um, both ears, that is considered presumptive disability. Loss of or loss of use of any two limbs. Total and permanent, uh, and permanent blindness in both eyes and total loss of speech. So if you have any of those, you're, um, you qualify for presumptive disability benefits, which will be full benefits until you, um, until you return to normal condition. It says presumptive disability can also be determined using a loss of earnings test. With this test, the insured's income before the disability is compared to the insured's earnings after disability. If the post-disability income is less than the pre-disability income by a certain percentage, then the insured is considered, is considered totally disabled and therefore he or she is eligible for a full benefit. So if they cannot determine the, the disability benefits um, based on your disability, then you're going to um, go on your loss of income. So let's say earning $1,000 a month before you got disabled. And then after your, your, your disability, now you're earning uh, $500 a month. So when that difference exceeds a certain percent uh, or percentage, it could be 25, 50%, then they automatically assume that you're um, totally disabled and you get full benefits. All right, let's move on to our next question. Our next question here says, what kind of coverage does an insurer has if he or she is not required to pay a deductible? What kind of coverage does an insurer has if he or she is not required to pay a deductible? A says corridor, B says major medical, C says comprehensive, D says first dollar. Let me repeat this. What kind of coverage does an insurer has if he or she is not required to pay a deductible? A corridor, B major medical, C, comprehensive, D, first dollar. Correct answer is D, first dollar, okay? So 
Anytime you're not required to pay or deductible, that's a first dollar policy. For major medical policies, you're required to pay or deductible. For comprehensive policies, you're required to pay or deductible. So let's read the answer choice here, you know, the feedback. It says, first dollar coverage is a type of insurance policy with no deductible, where the insurer assumes payment once an insurer, an insurable event occurs. The insurer will pay out is often lower than on similar plans that have a deductible or premiums for the first dollar plans will be higher. So if something happens, you don't have to pay a deductible. First of all, what is a deductible? So a deductible is just the amount that you have to pay out of pocket before your insurance can start to, um, you know, to chip in. So for some insurance company, uh, they may you have an annual deductible of $1,000, or it depends on what plan you get. Keep in mind that the higher your deductible, the lower your premium, okay? So there's an inverse relationship between your deductible and your premium. So the higher your deductible, the lower your premium, and the lower your deductible, the higher your premium, all right? So, so what some insurance companies will say, okay, we will take, you know, you don't have to pay a deductible, but your benefit will be a lot less than say, if your plan had a deductible. Let's keep on reading. Basic expense, AKA first dollar policies usually cover and insure for non-surgical doctor, um, no, visit while hospitalized, that's medical expense, um, charges for room and board while hospitalized, hospital expense, for an extra premium, coverage may be expanded to include payment for office visits, diagnostic x-rays, laboratory charges, ambulance, and the cost of the operating room miscellaneous expense. So this right here is, this right here is basic expense, all right? So keep in mind, another name for first dollar policy is basic expense policy. So guys, you have to know these synonyms because it gets tricky on the exam. Know them, know them. That's one of our strategies. So first dollar, when you hear first dollar, think basic expense. And these are all of the things it includes. So it will include, it will, it will cover you for non-surgical doctor, um, visits while you're hospitalized. It will cover you for um, hospital expenses and it will also cover you for diagnostic um, cost of operating room, etc., etc. So, So notice and what I recommend you guys do if you're you know, you're watching this, you can just take a screenshot of this, uh, you know, just take a picture of it and you can take your time study on your own. All right? All right. Let's, uh, we still have more year to go. This is for the same question, just more uh, feedback. It says surgical expenses usually do not cover routine vision or dental care. Insured is free to choose any doctor, surgeon, hospital. Uh, specify the benefit limit for cover expense. Note that a benefit limit may be less than actual built uh, expenses. 
do not have a deductible first dollar coverage. So just know any medical plan that doesn't have a deductible, you automatically think first dollar plan. All right. The summary coverage equals so for first dollar plan or basic um, uh, basic expense plans, your coverage will just be your basic medical expense plus basic surgery expense plus basic hospital expense. That is your formula. All right, let's let's keep on moving on. All right, so I, I told you guys we're going to delve in a little deep into disability. <laughs> let's let's move on. All right. So it says conditions such as total and permanent blindness or dismemberment will automatically qualify and ensure for full disability benefits. With this in mind, which disability policy provision does this describe? Residual A, residual disability. B, dismember D, partial disability. Let me read this again. It says conditions such as total and permanent blindness or dismemberment will automatically qualify and insured for full disability benefits. With this in mind, which disability policy provision does this describe? So now the correct answer is C, presumptive disability. Why is this presumptive? Now we just covered that, I think, uh, in the last, no, we'll cover that two questions ago. So presumptive is you're presuming. As for example, if you uh, know, if you have uh, no blindness, no, if there's permanent blindness um, or dismemberment, you're automatically qualified. So that's presumptive disability. Now let's go ahead and explain all these terms in details. Uh, what is um, residual disabilities? Uh, no, um, residual disability. What is uh, partial disability? So let's go ahead and read this feedback and explain everything. So let's get started. So presumptive disability is a provision that is found in most disability income policies, which specifies the conditions that will automatically qualify the insured for full disability benefits. Types of disability recognized by insurers. First one is total disability. With total disability, with total disability, you have the first option is own disability, right? So some policies mandate that the insurer must be unable to perform the essential duties of his or her, her own occupation, usually for the first two years of disability, then it changes to any occupation. So for total disability, you have two kinds of total disability, own, own occupation. That is, okay, let's say I'm a pharmacist. If I cannot work as a pharmacist, then since that's considered my occupation, then I'm automatically qualified as, um, as totally disabled. 
Now, the other definition of total disability could be any um, occupation. So yes, even though I cannot perform my job as a pharmacist because I have to be you know, standing on my feet and walking and moving around, but maybe I could sit as a, you know, at a desk and I could do you know, coding, I could do programming, right? Now, if I can do that, even though I cannot work as a pharmacist anymore, um, I can still do that. So that would be considered any uh, occupation. So before the insurance company can pay out any claims, they have to make sure that you cannot do any other job. You cannot perform any other job. Those policies tend to be more restrictive, but on the flip side, the premiums for those policies tend to be a lot less. Whereas for the policies that just say own occupation, like, okay, um, let's say, um, you know, I'm a, uh, I don't know, uh, I'm a medical doctor. If something happens and I cannot perform my duties as a medical doctor, then I'm considered totally disabled and the insurance company pays me money. Even though I could um, be an Uber driver, even though I could work as a plumber, but since I cannot perform my own occupation, that's a medical doctor, then I'm considered disabled. So those policies, since they are very generous, they tend to be more expensive. So let's let's read on here. It says here, um, again, those policies are the least restrictive and it's easier to qualify for benefits. Um, again, that's under own occupation, usually for skilled white collar um, professions. But as I said earlier, there are higher premiums. Then the second one, as I explained, was any occupation, right? So you must be unable to perform any duties that he or she should be able to do by training, education, or experience. It's the most restrictive and harder to qualify for benefits. Insured may be required to be under the care of a doctor. So in order to qualify for this, the insurance company may require a doctor to be treating you. The next type of disability we have is permanent disability. With permanent disability, it's a total disability that eliminates or reduces the insurer's ability to resume work, okay? So permanent disability means that you're knocked out, it's, it's permanent, you know, it's a total disability that eliminates or reduces the insurer's ability to resume work. So you cannot go back to work at all, it's permanent, all right? Then you have temporary disability, you know, just as the name says. The insurer is uh, able to continue work, but works less than their usual hours or efficiently, um, you know, or efficiency. They're expected to fully recover. So let's say, um, I could say, okay, so someone recently has surgery, and the doctor tells them, you know what, you can you can go back to work, but because you just had surgery, you won't be able to lift anything greater than 20 pounds, right? So that's a temporary disability. You are not able to perform certain um, functions of your job, um, and it is temporary, right? So that's just what it says. It's, it is temporary and you're expected to make a full recovery. Then partial disability, which is the fourth type of disability here, 
is the inability to perform one or more of the regular duties of one's occupation. Benefits uh, pay up to 50% of total disability benefit for three to six months. So that's for Australia. So if you have partial disability, you're not fully um, disabled. So they'll just pay you 50% of what they'll pay for total disability. Then the fifth kind of disability is residual disability, right? So it says it provides benefits for loss of income after the insured returns to work, usually following a total disability. This type of disability does not go away completely. The benefit will pay the difference between your pre-disability earnings and post-disability um, earnings. So let's say um, before, let's just say I was a truck driver and I could drive maybe 16 hours a day before my disability, right? But because of my disability or whatever injury I had, now I can only drive eight hours a day, right? So that is considered a residual um, disability. And, and that's something that uh, is expected. You no, know, it comes in, in and out, right? So I can be good this month. And then um, the next month, you know, my back starts to hurt me again. I need to go and get treatment. But residual just means what it says, right? Um, that you're not expected to make complete full recovery. No, it's still going to be with you. So in, in order to determine your disability income benefit, they'll usually take what you used to earn before. Okay, you used to earn $1,000 before your disability. What are you earning now? And they're going to pay you the difference. Um, that's how some of those policies work. All right, so yeah, the last disability, I think this is the last one we have is recurrent disability. So that's just what the word says. Recurrent means it's gonna keep coming back, right? So it's a second disability that is suffered due to the same cause within, uh, within a specified time period, usually six months. The elimination period will not apply and the disability will be considered continuous. And then the last disability you have is presumptive disability. Well, we covered this earlier. So loss is presumed to be total permanent due to the loss of sight, speech, hearing, or the loss of two, two limbs. Benefits paid under presumptive disability uh, are usually paid in lump sum. The benefits are paid in lump sum payments because it is assumed the insurer will not be able to return to work. So note, partial and residual disability benefits um, equals at work benefits, okay? So, so they're going to um, base it based on how much you used to earn at work. All other dis disability benefits are considered 24-hour benefits. That means um, benefits around the clock. All right. So we have a few more minutes to go. I hope you guys um, are enjoying this so far. Let's, uh, let's see. Um, let's see here.
All right. Moving forward, a few more questions. All right. So it says here 46, for Medicare insurance benefits, all of the following individuals may qualify except. Now, Medicare is one of the most um, confusing, well, Medicare and Social Security. Um, the, some of the most confusing topics on the, the um, on the exam. Well, Social Security is on the health insurance exam and Medicare is on the, no, Social Security is on the life insurance exam and, and Medicare, Medicare is on the health insurance exam, right? So you, uh, you know, you're, you're going to find those ones usually confusing. And then the topics that have to do with taxes are also very confusing. That's um, the most difficult topics for a, a lot of people. When you sign up for our course, the Mental Pass Life and Health Insurance uh, Prep course, we have, uh, I think it's a six or seven page cheat sheet uh, just for taxes. So go over taxes for health insurance, uh, taxes for annuities, life insurance, disability income policies, um, business um, uses of life insurance. It's a little I think it's, it's it's three rules and no and no, it's a lot of rules but three three columns and we we'll compare everything side by side and it makes it very easy to understand. If not, I'll tell you when it comes to to taxes and Medicare and all of those things, it's very complicated for a lot of people. Even for me, sometimes I still <laughs> struggle with that. All right, so let's come here. Let's read this question again. For Medicare insurance benefits, all of the following individuals may qualify except ACS Tamba, a 58-year-old Liberian American man who has been receiving Social Security disability benefits for the last 36 months. B, says Joanna, a 39-year-old woman with permanent kidney failure. C, says Penny, a 65-year-old woman. And D says John, a 55-year-old retiree. So which one of these people, right, and which one of these we just described will not qualify for Medicare benefits? So in, so in order to know the wrong answer, you first of all have to know the right answer. So what are the Medicare benefits? right because medicare comes with some benefits what are those benefits number one uh let's let's go over this medicare was created in 1966 to provide medical expense and hospital coverage to people age 65 and older so there are certain things you got to know when you hear the word medicare number one medicare i'm sorry medicare is a federal program medicaid is a state program okay just know that you know Medicaid is state or is funded by the federal government, but is um, managed and run by the state. So for example, purposes just know that it's a state program, but Medicare is a federal program. So that's the first thing you know, uh, you, you, know you need to know about Medicare. Number two, Medicare, in, in order to qualify for Medicare, you have to be 65 years and older, right? So by the time you hit 65, you're automatically qualified for Medicare. Now, what are the eligibility criteria for Medicare? Number one, you have to be 
over age 65, 65 or older, anyone who has chronic kidney disease. So it doesn't matter your age. So you can be 30 years old and you have uh, chronic kidney disease, um, you're automatically qualified for Medicare. And then anyone who has been receiving social security disability benefits for at least 24 months. So if any of these three um, things apply to you, then you're automatically qualified for Medicare. Again, you have to be over the age of 65. You have to have chronic kidney disease. It can be at any age, or you must be receiving social security benefits for at least 24 months. So which one of these people do not qualify? The correct answer here is D, John is a 55-year-old retiree, right? So, so John is not 65. John doesn't have kidney, uh, chronic kidney disease, and John has not been receiving social security benefits for at least 24 months. So no, John definitely does not qualify for social security, uh, for, for Medicare disability benefits. But Penny, she's 65-year-old, she qualifies. Joanna, 39-year-old, she has kidney failure, she qualifies in Tamba. He's been receiving social security benefits um, for 36 months, so he qualifies. Guys, that is it for our um, our health insurance portion. I hope this was able to help you out. Um, again, we just went over a sample of the questions. For health insurance, we have hmm, we have over a thousand questions for health insurance. So think about it, your exam for health insurance will be, well, it depends on your state, but it will be between 80 questions to no more than 100 questions, somewhere in that range, between 80 to 100 questions, right? So imagine if you go over a thousand of these questions with these detailed explanations where you, you can either listen to it on the podcast, you can listen to, you know, you can watch the videos, you can do the practice test, if you do a thousand questions of these, I'm guaranteeing you that unless you go and take the exam and just fall asleep, you're going to pass. You will pass, guys. So this is what we do. I'm very, I'm very proud of uh, the work here we do at Mental Pass because uh, we're just trying to get people to pass their exam. That is it. And passing your exam should not be that difficult. It should be very easy. So let's go here to our next section and I will share some things with you.